I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. It's hard to feel dignified when you are living in poverty, ensuring poverty. Now, who would want to do that and why? Since the eras of Franklin Roosevelt and then Lyndon Johnson, whose voice we just heard, Democratic presidents with the support of Democratic senators and members of Congress, it's been the Democratic policies which have earnestly tried to do the opposite to successfully address and wipe out poverty in America. But, according to our guest today, Felicia Kornbluh, ensuring poverty is exactly what current policies actually do. That's the title of her new book, co-written with uh, Gwendolyn Mink, Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective. Ever since President Johnson's successful creation of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, Republicans and many Democrats seemed to have been focused less on the goal of actually addressing poverty and more on imposing a traditional male-dominated judgmental belief in a no longer realistic, highly simplistic 19th century orthodox work ethic. With the much-touted welfare reform package passed by President Bill Clinton, assistance programs have been hijacked and are now failing to address poverty and may well serve instead to ensure poverty. As with so many other government programs, what is missing is a feminist perspective. Women are reduced to subjects, at effect, without input. Public conversations about poverty and welfare even today rarely acknowledge the nexus between racialized gender inequality and the economic vulnerability of single mother families. Yet there was a path charted by social justice feminists in the 1990s and early 2000s, a path rejected by policymakers. They advocated a return to the social justice path built on the equality of mothers, especially mothers of color, in policies aimed at poor family. Well, this new book, Ensuring Poverty, looks into areas of the discussion that are key to real success but have thus far been missing from public debate. The new book asks, what would policy look like if women actually mattered and were part of the process? Felicia Kornbluh, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, and thank you for that great summary of the book. Well, we try here. Felicia Kornbluh is Associate Professor of History and Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Vermont. She's author of The Battle for Welfare Rights, Politics and Poverty in Modern America, also from the University of Pennsylvania Press, as is this new book, Ensuring Poverty. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And I, as I think about anti-poverty programs over the last 60 years or so, one thing seems too obvious. They are created by older, white, largely wealthy white men, and the recipients are largely poor black women. One has to wonder how successful these programs and policies can be 
if those who are most affected are mere subjects. Now, this is a pretty simplistic reduction, but how significant is this overall dynamic behind the anti-poverty programs? Well, I think it matters. I think who's at the table matters. Um, One thing that I kept thinking about and working on the book was the old slogan of the disability rights movement of the 1970s, 80s, and up till today, which has always been nothing about us without us. Um, And I think for low-income people, just as for disabled people, and sometimes there's a lot of overlap there, uh, the idea is that if they're not participating in making public policy, that at the very least it's not going to be a match for their needs. And what we see in terms of this welfare policy, which is a policy for low-income moms and kids primarily, is that not only is it not a match, but that the whole thing was structured sort of the backwards way around. Um, It was structured to get people off. It was structured to Ah. reduce the number of people receiving the benefit, not structured to reduce their poverty or their vulnerability. Um, and it's just it's just backwards. So it's it's structured to get them off needing help, and that's the goal, really. That's the old uh, orthodox, you know, uh, uh, imposition of uh, some ethic from the nineteenth century that, you know, just a belief that, you know, there's something wrong. You are less than if you are in poverty. You and and uh, trying to help that. You know, just kick people off poverty. Then, you know, as a traditional Democrat liberal myself here, something about Bill Clinton's welfare reform package just didn't seem right. I I didn't really dig into it, but I got the sense, like the other programs, it kicked people off welfare, requiring jobs when there were no jobs to go to. There was no creation of jobs. Tell us about the Women's Committee of 100. Why did your group oppose the welfare reform of the 1990s, the name of which is Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996. Tell us about that Women's Committee of 100 and and your objections to it and and what you did to try to stop this welfare reform. Yeah, so I was was a member of this national advocacy organization called the Women's Committee of 100, and it was a very loosely organized thing um, we knew that we didn't, um, early in the Clinton administration, you know, President Clinton um, signaled that he was going to do something along the lines of welfare reform, which um, in this conversation mostly means welfare cuts and not, um, you know, not not a humane kind of reform. So um, we didn't have time to do really mass organizing, but we were able to organize among people who've been writing about this issue and people who already identified as feminists. And we pulled a pretty good coalition together, and we went and lobbied, especially the women in Congress. And I remember I lobbied with Betty Friedan, the author of the famous feminist book, um, The Feminine Mystique. Um, And that was crazy. I never thought I would meet her, (laughs) Um, actually. And we went to a bunch of women legislators, and we said, look, women legislators, mostly white women legislators, you call yourself feminists, and you're pro-choice, and that's great, um, and you fight hard for some of these issues, but we have to tell you that, that this issue, the welfare issue, is also a feminist issue, and that we, as kind of prominent feminists or research-oriented writing feminists, we will judge you as bad feminists right. um, and as, you know, as, as legislators who we don't want to support if you continue to support this 
um, this welfare reform, if you vote for this welfare reform. And so Bill Clinton had his own policy, and then the Republicans came into power in November 1994, yes. and they took both houses of Congress for the first time. Um, and then the policy got even worse and more conservative, and then President Clinton felt like he was kind of in a box, and he had to sign it because he had said that he wanted welfare reform, right? So then ultimately he did sign it, and we, I mean, we tried again. We did another round of lobbying, um, but we were defeated, and I think we were defeated because... Uh, the white women legislators that we were lobbying, they just didn't believe us. They didn't believe that they would really face any kind of electoral consequences for um, supporting quote-unquote welfare reform. And I think, um, I think largely that's because um, the, the politicians were lying about it. They were suggesting that people we're going to be brought to a place where they wouldn't need the program anymore. And there was a suggestion that there would be child care available for people, that there would be education, that there would be training, you know, that people who uh, were able to get into the labor market would sort of be given an off-ramp from welfare. But that never really happened. And if you look at the actual policy, if you just read the legislation, there's no guarantee of child care in that legislation. Um, there's no guarantee of educational access or support. In fact, what the legislation did was they cut people's access to education and training very dramatically from what it had been just a few years earlier. Um, so there was a lot of talk about that, the mm -hmm. dignity of work and so on and so forth. And to a large degree, you know, my, my allies and me agreed with that, that, you know, if people want to get access to the labor market, that's terrific. And in fact, in some ways, that's a very feminist thing. But we can't say to people, no, we're going to push you off the rolls, and we're not going to guarantee that your kids are in uh, a safe, healthy environment in child care. And we're not going to make sure that you have access to education and training so that you can actually use your brain and use your skills. You know, mm, yeah. That was where the real problem was. And then we, also, we have another thing about it, which is that we think that the work that mothers do as mothers Absolutely. and as caregivers for you know, family members who may be disabled, who may be elderly... We think that that's valuable, too, and I think it's high time that our government actually acknowledged that work and supported it. I don't see why not. It is a rather significant factor in our economic uh, security, having people take care of kids and older people. It's absolutely necessary, but you're right. Not to talk about that is, uh, it's it's missing a great deal, and I must say, I I find it interesting how, you know, it's degrading to be on welfare, but <laughs> if you look at the actual dollars spent on uh, what I would call military welfare, contractors, you know, who are uh, building things that we'll never use that cost billions and billions of dollars, uh, and you know, putting yeah. wealthy interests on welfare. You know, we have, as Gore Vidal said, socialism for the rich and free market capitalism for everybody else. And, you know, to talk about, uh, take away the dignity of people who at times in their life need some, some help. It's just a reality. Everybody right. goes through difficult times. Uh, and what about what you say is, quote, the replacement of rights-sensitive income support for single mothers and their children with conditional disciplinary aid? What does that mean? The heart of this welfare reform that the Congress passed and that Bill Clinton signed in the middle 90s was that we moved from a system 
that we call an entitlement in which if people met certain criteria, um, if they were parents of young children, if they were poor, um, and if they met whatever the criteria were that their own individual states um, imposed, then they were guaranteed that they would get assistance. And the federal government and the state together supported that. We still have that kind of a system, oh, yeah. um, at least for now, under Medicaid, the health care program for low-income people. But we don't have it anymore for mothers and children. So that's what we mean by being rights-based. Um, it was just a right of citizenship. You know, not for everybody, not every parent needs this kind of help. But if you do, if you're, say, I don't know, somebody who gets into a, a bad um, abusive relationship or something mm-hmm. like that, and you need to get out, yeah. and, you know, and you're not, you've been outside the labor market for a while because you've been raising kids, um, or, you know, let's say you're only able to earn a little bit in the labor market, we used to say, we got your back. Government, we got your, the government has got right. your back. And now it's much more, it's conditional, meaning, you know, sometimes you might be able to get that help and sometimes no. So you can't count on it. And for the most part, what we see today is that people don't even ask. People don't even know the program exists. They assume that they're not going to be able to get help. And so a lot of that reduction that we've seen in the number of people receiving assistance is because people are basically um, too frustrated or uninformed even to try to get this kind of assistance. And that's so counterproductive, in my opinion. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Felicia Kornblu, whose uh, new book, co-written with Gwendolyn Mink, is Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective. And when people, you know, white people in particular, think of uh, people on welfare, you know the image that often comes up the welfare queen that uh, Ronald Reagan talked about in such a racist fashion. And, you know, it's, it's really not true, of course. What makes you say that uh, misogynist and racist myths about race, single mothers, family structure, and the work ethic gave rise to the welfare reform, to welfare reform and underlie the pejorative and punitive strategy of its various provisions? Well, if you go back and you look at the record, you look at the um, the documents of the congressional debates from the early 90s in particular, and then on from there, they're just full of myths. And it's very, it's very strange in a way. You know, for me as an academic researcher, we have a lot of real evidence. You know, there are years and years worth of pretty good social science studies about why people become poor and you know, it's fairly predictable that there's always going to be some number of women raising young children who are going to be in economic trouble. That's, there's nothing aberrant about that. Um, in some ways, it's not particularly troubling, except that, you know, it exposes them to all kinds of economic risk and stuff. Um, but, um, but the congressional debate just ignored all of that evidence and instead was kind of floating on myths and, and mm-hmm. some very, very old myths, mm-hmm. uh, particularly about how um, African-Americans don't work or don't want to work um, or don't work as much as white people do. In fact, what the data show is that black women overall work more than any other group, any other subgroup of our population that's in the labor market. And, um, and yet people seem to have believed that, you know, if a white woman or a middle-class woman 
is staying home with her kids and um, is getting economic support from her husband, say, um, that's okay. But if a black woman is raising her kids and, you know, taking them to medical appointments and uh, doing all the things you have to do with a young child, somehow that's illegitimate, mm. right? It's not okay in our, in our cultural imagination or something. And so those were the kinds of myths that then wound up informing this legislation and even if you look at the text of the legislation, it starts with 10 findings. These big um, big transformative laws always do start with a kind of preamble that says this is, the, this is the philosophical basis for this law. And in terms of this law, the philosophical base or the findings section is all about marriage and how marriage is the foundation of a successful society. And like, I don't know who, really? who thinks that. <laughs> where, did that. Where did the evidence come from? What does that even mean? Um, and what does it have to do with public assistance? Um, so the whole the whole thing was floating on certain ideas, especially about African Americans and uh, Latinos, Latinas, and about about women and gender roles, and about how everybody would be fine if they just were in these kind of fictitious Ozzy and Harriet 1950s style <laughs> marriages. You know those those myths. Well, the myth of having. You know, women depending on men, you know, it keeps the uh, male control going on. So, you know, that that's a convenient myth. And it's amazing to me how pervasive myths are to policymaking. You know, when you look at the uh, the myths about the uh, the immigrants, the refugees trying to come here who happen to be of a darker tone uh, that they're going to live off. Well, they're some of the hardest workers there are. But that's facts, and <laughs> they go by myths. It's so much more convenient. But it doesn't do good when you have policies based on myths, I would think. And, boy, just trying to get through that and have actual facts, not uh, alternative facts, uh, they count. And you have more success if you deal with reality, I would think. Now, of course, Bill Clinton came into office as a new kind of Democrat, the Democratic Leadership Council, the corporate money. Uh, how new and different was his welfare reform from traditional democratic ideals. And do you think this welfare reform program may have resulted in the first serious division of many, which would result in uh, the party split, again, because of uh, Bill Clinton? I'm getting the sense that this was at the start of, uh, like, wait a minute, that's not my party. We've, we've been... Uh, you know, compassionate and, and recognize that, uh, you know, we can't impose our, uh, you know, white male dominant myths on, on everybody anymore. So, again, a sort of a long question mixed with a statement there. Uh, how new and different was his welfare reform tra from traditional Democratic ideals like FDR and Lyndon Johnson, do you think? Well, it was very different. And uh, that was the, bo the bottom line thing that my colleagues and I tried to say when we went to Washington and we were fighting welfare reform in the middle 1990s was just saying to Democrats, just be a Democrat. What a concept. <laughs> and that seemed like a simple message, right? Yeah, really. <laughs> um, but it was very hard. People felt like, you know, what we were calling just being a Democrat, i.e. supporting the policies that really defined the Democratic Party from the 1930s forward. Right. Um, that seemed very risky to folks. Um, not everybody, but it, but there were a lot of people who were who had become persuaded by that time. They were sort of skittish 
about yeah. asserting what we consider traditional democratic values. And so what you see in the mid-90s is a split. It's not that unlike, uh, I, think, I think you're right about this, it's not that unlike the kind of split that we see today yeah. between people who might call themselves Bernie Democrats or Elizabeth Warren Democrats versus people who might call themselves mainstream Democrats or Hillary Clinton Democrats. Yeah. Um, but it's an early version of it. And, and I, think, I think Bill Clinton was much more conservative than, um, than anybody would dare to be today. Um, he even he even did played the anti-immigrant card, you know, and built up the border patrol. And there's a whole section of this welfare reform, which is a very negative um, anti-immigrant portion of the law. Some of which was later uh, struck down by the courts. But um, yeah, they were playing all those kind of racist cards, all those us and them, other mm-hmm. othering mm-hmm. kinds of cards, mm-hmm. and that felt to us. It seemed to us like a real violation. And and there were Democrats who were on the inside who also were protesting. And I think it's important to yes. remember them and kind of value the risks that they took, even though they were having to fight a president from their own party. So we talk a lot about Representative Patsy T. Mink, yes. who who happens to have been the mother of my, my co-author. Um, and we used her um, her records, her papers, which are kept now in the Library of Congress, to kind of get an inside view of what it was like to to be trying to navigate, you know, the emergence of this very conservative version of democratic politics from uh, from the inside of the party, and and what Patsy Mink did, and what some others did, was they tried to organize the more liberal Democrats, the ones who are representing urban constituencies, representing non-whites, uh, representing progressive feminists, and so on, and tried to say at least to President Clinton, look, if you hold the line and you stand up for democratic values, we will have your back mm-hmm. and we will support you. You know, if you if you veto some of this invidious legislation that's coming out from the Republican majority in Congress, they said, um, then we will sustain your veto and we will help you out um, and give you some political cover. Um, so they really did try that and they were defeated. The The White House decided that for its own political reasons, they had to move in a certain direction. They had to support this welfare right, reform. Yeah. They had to cut benefits for folks. And um, and the Liberal Democrats were kind of left hanging out there. Um, so then fast forward, it's taken almost 20 years mm. for us to get back to um, recovering, I think, that spirit of a genuinely progressive, more activist-oriented, and I hope more poverty-sensitive, uh, version of democratic and progressive politics. Boy, I think you're right. I really do. I think this last uh, midterm election helped move that along, and we have been uh, moving in that direction. And uh, you know, and for them to move to become sort of Republican light as a way to win, I guess that worked for a while. But I, I, I think it's uh, that period is over. And I must say, I was a right. big fan of Patsy Mink. She was really. Uh, terrific uh, member of Congress from Hawaii, uh, first woman of color ever elected to the House of Representatives in the 1960s. And, and she bought, brought special perspective to uh, the debates over welfare reform. What, what, what was some of her special perspective, do you think? Well, the first thing was that she, she insisted that the work that mothers did was real work. And 
it's interesting because she was definitely a feminist. You know, she was the original author of Title IX, which is the right. anti-sex discrimination in higher education law, right? So she was definitely a feminist, but she was the kind of feminist who believed that uh, being in the labor market isn't the only uh, valuable thing that a woman really? can do, that actually That's raising really. your own kids is also valuable, yeah. and that we need some kind of government policy that is going to support women who during those times when they're raising young kids, um, you know, before the kids are in full-day school, for example. Um, so it really offended her that there was a Democratic president who was going out on the hustings <laughs> and suggesting that the, the mothering work of American women was not valuable. So that was the first thing. Um, you know, and even though she was a woman who obviously was working in the in the mainstream labor market herself, she really understood that perspective. Um, and I think I think politically also, you know, there was there's a way to you know to honor to honor women's um, women's work as mothers that would have spoken to some of the folks who in the '90s were voting for Republicans. Yes, but you know, yes. but President yes. Clinton wasn't willing to do it. So, and the other thing she said was, look, if people are working, if we're going to say to women, no more uh, welfare, but we want you to be in the labor market, okay. Um, But we need to really provide those supports. And so she introduced many, many pieces of legislation that didn't get that far um, that were about securing people access to education and training as a real way to get off of welfare instead of just saying, you know, see you later. Yeah, right. Um, which is what the, right, which is what this welfare reform basically said to low-income women and kids. As as a traditional democrat myself, that that bothered me a great deal. How can you just boot people off welfare and not have any kind of job creation? It just makes no sense at all. I mean, not only is it heartless, but economically it's just dumb. It's just really dumb in my opinion. And uh, you know, of course we've had uh one of the major trends of 2018 has been the lead role that many women, especially women of color like new rock star Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who won, and Stacey Abrams from Georgia, who didn't win but is sure staying mm-hmm. active. She's quite a star, too. They, they're up-and-comers in democratic politics. What does your research tell us about the significance of these women candidates stepping up? I think it's very significant. You know, we always have to be careful. We don't want to um, just have stereotypes about women and just think right. that all women are super liberal um, and all men are conservative or something like yeah. that. Um, you know, so I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't right, want right. to go down That's that true. road. Yeah. Um, I have to remember Margaret Thatcher in England, um, <laughs> and yeah, oh, yeah. there have been a lot of other conservative women too. Oh, yeah. um, but that having been said, we know historically that women tend to care more and to understand the significance more of these kinds of domestic policy issues, especially issues of family policy. And the thing that I'm focused on, not just for poor people, but really for all Americans, is how do we make sure that, we, you know, that we're allowing people to, to balance between their work lives and their family lives? We've, we've created, somehow created a, a system that's just unsustainable, right? Yeah. Yeah. People's... people's uh, work responsibilities and their family responsibilities don't mesh. Everybody's stressed out. Everybody's working too hard. You know, I think almost everybody in America has somebody in their family, you know, who needs some care giving, and whether it's a, you know, disabled or elderly or ill person or a young child. 
um, you know, people people have those kinds of needs, and it's it's totally legitimate for us to address those needs. I mean, who are we as human beings if we're not doing that? But right now, we have a real mismatch between what's going on in the labor market and in families. And I'm hopeful that women who are in elective office will get that. Um, and the research says that they, they do. They tend to to get those issues and focus on them to a greater degree than men in in office. So... I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful even that there might oh, yeah. be some opportunities for, you know, for coalition between progressive Democrats and mainstream Democrats and between Democrats and Republicans if they can focus on this kind of family stuff. And I would think, you know, you talk about family, the, the whole, uh, you know, the old Christian coalition and, and that uh, cultural conservatives, they at least talked about family values. And and <laughs> one would think, well, my goodness, if we talk about you know, caretakers being of value to the economy, then maybe that would have appealed to people who tend toward toward that cultural conservatism as well, but they didn't even try that. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, Felicia Kornblue about her new book, uh, co-written with Gwendolyn Mink, Insuring Poverty. Imagine that, Insuring Poverty. That's a grabber. Welfare Reform and Feminist Perspective. And at the start of the book, you make a rather interesting claim that welfare reform has effectively shortened women's lives. Welfare reform has shortened women's lives. What evidence is there to support this rather powerful uh, analysis? It's a shocking fact. Um, it's not shocking. even a, a supposition or an opinion on our part. There, mm. There's good evidence, if we look from before and after the passage of welfare reform measures in in the states that people um, people who receive or used to receive these benefits are just not living as long. And I think what happened was that the rug was kind of pulled out from under folks, especially low income mothers with children. And since they're no longer able to get benefits, um, there's a national time limit of five years oh, right. for receiving right for receiving public assistance. And if you have more than one kid, that's certainly not going to get, hmm. you, you know, your two kids or three kids into full day school in five years. Um, and that's for your whole life. So if you, you know, if you get into Jeez. some kind of economic, negative economic circumstances later on, then the, the aid is also not going to be available to you. So, and many states have cut it even further than that. Um, without so without this kind of cash assistance, people are foregoing things they need. They're foregoing food. Uh, they're for, foregoing medicine because they can't pay copays. Um, yeah. They're not traveling to doctor's appointments because they don't have the money, and people are just are are getting sick and even dying. And I think that. I think we need to face that as a society. You know, I think we, we've gotten a little better in the last several years at facing the ways in which some of our policing policies and our criminal justice policies are killing people yeah. in some of our cities. And I think this is another way we need to look at public policy and the way that it has, I don't know, has changed in ways that, you know, are not just potentially harmful, but actually, in fact, are harming people and are changing people's fortunes in a very, very decisive way. Oh, there you go again with facts. You know, <laughs> <laughs> myths are so much more. I know, very unpopular these days, facts. <laughs> 
Well, I think we I agree. I think we're starting to get it. We've been down so low. You know, we're starting to pick up. Even some Republicans are saying, wait a minute, maybe this Trump is a little bit wacko. But that's another subject. Ever since Franklin Roosevelt's great New Deal, it's been uh, their reason for existence. The Republicans have consistently sought to destroy it ever since it was created. I mean, that's just they're there to take it apart. And we remember the Republican class of 1994's contract with America. And as part of that, aid to families with dependent children was replaced by TANF. Uh, I forget what that stands for. T- tell us about that. Temporary what- assistance to needy families, oh, yes. Oh, right. That's much temporary. Ah, yes. We don't have Supposed to Supposed support- to be temporary, yep. Right. So tell us about that change, please, how significant that was, TANF taking the place of AFDC. So that's the critical change. The The welfare reform legislation that was passed in 1996 had many different parts to it, um, including a cutoff of benefits for immigrants, documented as well as undocumented immigrants. Um, we could talk about that later if you want to. I'm not not a big fan of that one. Um, but the, the Title I of the law, the first big piece of the law, eliminated the old Aid to Families with Dependent Children program that had been created under Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, and it created a new program called Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, or TANF. In my state, we call it Reach Up, but it's the same program, and the idea is that there will be a very temporary lifeline that will be extended to low-income moms and their children, and by design... Uh, the program is going to do everything it can. Its administrators will do everything they can to get people off as fast as they can. Mm-hmm. And that's where the five-year time limit comes in at the national level, and then states are allowed to go down to as little as two years uh, of a time limit. And they also start imposing a work requirement on folks uh, very early on. And depending on where you are, Sometimes there's some support to go along with the work requirements, some assistance at actually finding a job, but a lot of the time there's no particular assistance. There's just a requirement, go get a job. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've come to. And that is the only cash welfare program that we have in this country for low-income moms and their kids, no matter what their circumstances are, no matter where they are in the country. This is the only program we have, and we've just cut it and cut it and cut it down to the bone. And it's like there's something undignified about occasionally needing uh, help. It, it just I, I wonder about other Western, you know, industrialized countries, modern countries. I, I, I don't know, but I would think maybe they don't look down so much on people who at times in their lives uh, need help and that, you know, it's just part of the system and it's not degrading to take that. I, I don't know. And, uh, well, maybe you can speak to that. Yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think most cultures are, are, you know, are fantastic when people are, are in poverty, but they, a lot of other countries have found ways um, to hold people up, you know, and not to let them sink so far as we let poor people sink in our country. So, you know, there's some things that people just don't have to pay for at all, like health care in most of the industrialized world, for sure. example. Um, and That's most of the countries that we usually compare ourselves to do so much better in terms of child care. You know, the government either providing it or uh, providing the resources so that people can find it on their own. 
you know, we do a little bit through the tax code. After you pay for child care, then you get a child care tax credit. Um, but it's kind of too late by then, and it never really matches how much you paid, um, never really comes close even. Um, and then if you're really, really poor, you might be able to get child care through a government-funded program, but you might not. It's not, it's not promised. You know, so they do a lot better on that stuff. And then there also are kind of backup programs. There's a dole in most right. countries that we would usually compare ourselves to for people who are in bad economic circumstances. And there's also a system of paid leaves so that if you do have to leave your job, if you're in a job and you have to leave the job because you had a kid or you adopted a kid or you have an ill or elderly relative, you can take time off. And it varies depending on which country you're in, right? But in just about every other country, you do that and you get compensated so that you can actually take that leave. In the United States, you can take the leave for 12 weeks, um, but only if you can afford to work for 12 weeks without uh, having any income or you can afford to withdraw, withdraw from work for 12 weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we have a lot of work to do in the United States just to kind of come up to zero on these issues. My goodness. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing, really, when you talk about it, what the values are there. And touching on what we just spoke about with regard to some of the effects of TANF, uh, you call it reproductive injustice by design. So uh, talk about that a little bit. And then, you know, how, how does this TANF actually ensure poverty? And maybe following that up, you say it's time to replace TANF with the safety net income policy. A lot of questions there. Up. Start with the reproductive justice, reproductive injustice thing. Right, right, right. Um, I uh, I don't know how how much your listeners know this language, but um, among feminist activists and among my students in women's studies, people talk a lot about not just reproductive rights, meaning legal abortion, but about having a broader agenda that people call reprodu- a reproductive justice agenda. So that mm. would be, of course, including access to legal abortion and birth control, but also access to other things that would let people really make choices about whether to have kids, when to have kids, under what circumstances, you know, how safe and um, how well off your family is going to be. And that's where the United States is really falling down on the job, um, you know, even aside from the the risks to legal abortion. Um, Because when people are living in great poverty and there's no system of economic support for mothers and children, then they can't really choose, right? So you may be able to choose whether to to have an abortion or whether to use birth control, but you can't really choose to have a child if you want to. Interesting point. Um, so, so, so against some of the cultural right, you know, which, which claims to be pro-life, as, as Barney Frank said, the pro, exactly. pro-life from conception to birth. Uh, exactly. Exactly. I I, I think there there is a pro-life agenda that would say, you know, we need to we need to have a real safety net for people when when they fall into difficult times. Yes. Not a kind of Swiss cheese <laughs> of a safety net. Really? And so that's why we say that this this welfare reform that the Democrats and Republicans together created in the 1990s is uh, producing reproductive injustice. Yes. Um, it also, the law was all full of, you know, stuff about um, how teen parents are bad parents by definition, and so it, there are all kinds of incentives for the states to, um, to cut down on teen pregnancy and parenting, 
and about how people who are receiving welfare benefits um, shouldn't have additional children. States, many states have imposed what they call family caps, um, laws that say if you're receiving some public assistance and then you have an additional child, that they won't give you aid for that new child because they want to punish you for having kids while you're receiving benefits. So, um, yeah, we start... We start not just um, not just affecting people's economic lives, but affecting people's reproductive lives, protect, uh, affecting their romantic lives, their sexual lives, their marital lives. So this welfare reform and a lot of other policies that have sort of gone under the radar for many years uh, really interfere with with people's liberties we would say, with, with the liberties and the freedom of American citizens in very profound ways. And I think we haven't yet really engaged that as a society, even, you know, even among Democrats, even among progressives. I don't think we've really dug in enough to those kinds of issues. Well, we haven't. And uh, you think, why do you think that TANF has become kind of the playbook for the Trump-era war on the welfare state? Well, it's become a playbook because it was so successful. Um, one of the most devastating things I read was um, a study that was done by sociologist Arlie Hochschild um, at the University of California. So she interviewed all these folks who, who affiliated with the Tea Party. It was before the Trump election, but, um, but we can extrapolate from her Tea Party people to the people who ultimately voted for Trump. And people have all kinds of negative ideas about the government, but when she sat down with them and she kind of dug into people's anti-government opinions, behind it all or beneath it all was anti-welfareism. And those same uh, old myths, uh, uh, right, about how some women, especially non-white women, were getting high, you know, getting rich, living high off the hog, high on the hog, with government help, and, you know, that there was something illicit going on in all of that. That was lurking behind everything else that people thought about the government. And so there were people who were voting for the voting with the Tea Party, voting um, against environmental regulations, voting against any kind of government program because they understood it all as a form of welfare. And when they said welfare, it just brought up those same old myths. So today, when the Trump administration says, you know, we have to eliminate fraud in the disability program, or we have to impose work requirements in the Medicaid program for low-income people who need health care, um, or work requirements, they try to do this in the food stamp program, the SNAP program. They're just drawing on that old playbook from the 1990s, and they know when they say the word welfare or when they talk about work requirements um, that people are going to just slot those old assumptions, those old racist and sexist assumptions into their minds, and the conservatives will be able, the Trump conservatives will be able to cut these programs to the bone in the name of saving the government for the good people, you know, and supposedly taking the government away from the bad people. And really, it's going to hurt everybody. I'm sure of that. Um, But it's a kind of sleight of hand that they learned in the 1990s was very, very effective. And I think if the Democrats don't call it out and the Democrats aren't able to say, you know what, in the 1990s, we made a mistake when we signed on to this stuff, right? If the Democrats don't do that, then they're going to be in a heap of trouble. Wow, interesting, because as you're right, the economic reality is that uh, 
know, a trickle up reality uh, is is not good for the country. I mean, we can see it starting to work now with a lot of the uh, Trump policies. People, more and more people are hurting. And to have, you know, to, to change us from a republic, you know, of the people to a plutocracy, uh, you know, I don't think that's real conservative, I will say. Mm-hmm. Um, now, part of the racist mythology about welfare is the concept of deadbeat dads. Now, don't you want fathers to pay their fair share? Why wouldn't you want more prosecution of fathers who fail to pay child support? What are some reasons why a woman might not want to name her child's father and try collecting uh, financial support from him? I'm so glad you asked about that because I I think of myself as a feminist and I teach women's studies. Um, and I think it might surprise people that I I care an enormous amount about what's happened to men and fathers under this policy just as much as what's happened to women and mothers. And um, and I think it's just the other side of the coin. So women were blamed for being, I don't know, sexually promiscuous and not working hard enough and their their motherhood was not valued. But men, low-income men, were blamed and still are blamed for being quote-unquote deadbeat dads. And you know, calling a bunch of low-income men deadbeat dads actually doesn't do anything. It doesn't help the moms. It doesn't help the kids. Um, it's not good public policy. Um, there never was there never was an alternative really for for those guys any more than there was an alternative for for women to actually get good jobs so that they could you know fulfill these mythic roles as as fathers and mothers. Um, and what's happened since the 1990s is that there's been a lot of negative rhetoric about low-income men and how they don't fulfill their responsibilities and they don't work hard enough and they don't pay enough child support and on and on. And uh, there's been no real effort to help them, you know, get good jobs mm-hmm. where they would be earning adequate wages. But instead, it's just become part of the same story of, you know, blaming men, locking them up. Um, holding them responsible for things that they, you know, actually can't uh, fulfill, and it's it's kind of become the link between the welfare crisis and the crisis of mass incarceration or the crisis of uh, racist policing. There are men who are in jail today for non-payment of child support, and that doesn't help their families any. And in fact, uh, they continue to be charged for child support they cannot pay while they're in jail. And they even, in some places, continue to be charged interest on the child support that they didn't pay in the past while they're in jail. So people wind up getting in hock, like in endless, endless cycles of debt that they cannot get out of in the name of turning them into, quote-unquote, good fathers. It is a crazy, crazy policy, and I call that the worst in faux feminism. You know, the idea that we could just go around and say negative things about low-income men or non-white men and that that would pass as some kind of feminism, that that makes me crazy. <laughs> I think we have to understand, you know, that low-income men are also facing constraints. And, you know, if we want those guys to work, um, then we have to give them opportunities to work. What a concept. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just locking them up, you know, mass incarceration and charging them interest. Boy, it's but that's reality. That is reality, unfortunately. I think the the title of the book, interesting to me, Ensuring Poverty, 
Are there interests who want to ensure that poverty remains? That's kind of a deep question. I think, you know, one of the, one of the kind of unpleasant things about this is that um, we, we as a society have pretty much allowed this to go on. You know, you could say people didn't know, and that's why we wrote this book, because we wanted to gather the evidence we do have. Um, but maybe people do know or did know that some of these policies were very destructive, especially for for low-income families, for non-white families. Um, and maybe there are some Americans who feel better when they know that there's somebody else who's doing worse than they are. You know, that's what I, that's mm-hmm. what I sometimes suspect on a, on a sad day. <laughs> I suspect that sometimes that, um, you know, even if, even if we're not doing so great, mm-hmm. you know, even if we're struggling with our health care or um, we're struggling to take care of, you know, of our family members or our kids and we're stressed out, maybe there are some Americans who feel better knowing that, right. you know, there's a, there's a poor woman next door or down the street or in the next community who's doing even worse than we are. That's, I mean, I don't like to think that about right. Americans, but I think there are some people who you know, who have it that way. And I just wish that, I wish politically we could offer people something positive so that, like, they wouldn't be so stressed out and that, you know, we would all be able to take care of our parents when they're dying or our kids when they're young or when they're sick, you know, and then we wouldn't have to make these kinds of invidious distinctions between between ourselves and the people who are doing worse than us. Uh Interesting analysis. Now, historically, neither Democrats nor Republicans ever address the right to dignity, the the concept of the right to dignity of Americans living in poverty. Some great new Democrats, many real progressive women, have been injected into Congress by voters in November 2018. Yay! Any indication that the new Congress might talk about the need for dignity of all Americans and have this real feminist perspective put into the, you know, the, what, what's a clearly broken and awful system now? Well, I don't know. I don't know what they're well, going to do. Of course, um, I'm I'm encouraged by the fact that even in 2016, you know, before um, before Trump was elected, and before Hillary Clinton was declared the winner of the Democratic primaries, there was a real conversation among Democrats and progressives about um, who we are, where we're going next, mm-hmm. and you know, and Bernie um, provoked a lot of that. But it wasn't just Bernie; it was also a lot of activists. It was Black Lives Matter and you know, and other people. And, um, and I'm very encouraged by that. And, and Hillary Clinton was forced to really reckon with some of the mistakes that her husband's administration made in the 1990s, especially around uh, criminal justice, right? Oh, yeah. um, Bill Clinton, had you know, he built more federal prisons, and there were, there were more crimes that uh, came with the death penalty, and they were terrible in the terms of the drug war and so on. So they didn't really get to welfare reform. Like, it kind of blipped on the, on the screen and then off the screen in about a minute. Uh, but I'm hopeful that now that the Democrats are really going to be digging in to another version of that conversation and talking about what's their future direction, what are they going to do with the House of Representatives, who's going to run in 2020, you know, and Bernie's going to be there, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is going to be there, um, and a lot of progressives and oh, a lot yeah, of women, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. They, that they might you know, be able to dig a little deeper and um, and not just say we were wrong in right. the past. But here's but what we can say, do. Here's a positive vision for the future. And what might some of that positive 
progressive feminist uh, vision be that might more effectively address poverty? I don't know if we can do that in the time we have left. <laughs> well, I'll just say quickly, I think we need to work on um, two ends of the spectrum at the same time. On the one hand, we need to have real anti-poverty policy, and it has to be gender sensitive, right? And we have to recognize who the poor people really are. Um, and that's not going to go away. Poverty is not going to go away, and the needs of mothers and children are not going to go away. And then on the other end, we need to have universal programs and policies for everybody. Yeah. I mean, for God's sake, we need a decent health care system um, that's less expensive and that reaches everybody. Yeah. And that's, that's a feminist policy, right? And the same with child care and the same with paid family leave. Uh, we need to do it, and, and um, it doesn't matter how much the conservatives like make fun of us or pretend that it's too expensive. You know, <laughs> I think the Democrats need to stand for something, and that's the thing they need to stand for. Well, I would think so, and uh, I can try to squeeze this in. Uh, guaranteed basic income has been suggested. Even Nixon supported that, and and there was the National Welfare Rights Organization in the early 70s talked about $5,000 per family, which now the current figure talked about is $12,000 per person. You know, just no questions. Everybody gets it. I wonder if that might be something that uh, should be part of the mix. Yeah, I... Um I think the universal basic income is a great and promising idea. I think we also need to make sure that women and children are getting support and that uh, and that basic income may not be enough. Oh, uh, true. You know? Yeah. Um so I've been I've been working with a lot of feminists to, you know, to add that in to the basic income conversation and make sure um uh, that mothers and children are, you know, are accounted That's a very for good point. in that. But yes, I think it's I think it's great. I'm so glad people are enthusiastic about that. And I'll tell you, back in the late sixties I was so optimistic for the twenty first century. I thought by now there'd be, you know, just good quality childcare everywhere. That'd be part of it. Allowing, you know, women to go out and do what they want and just not just for young people, but for old people as well. Well, I was so naive. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> well, this, there's hope. There is hope, folks. The book is called Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective. Our guest has been uh, Felicia Kornblue, and her co-author is uh, Gwendolyn Mink. It's put out by uh, University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you so much for uh, providing some uh, degree of good look at what might be possible actually doing things better. What a concept. You are most welcome. Thank you so much. Hear me roar In numbers too big To ignore And I know too much To go back And No
break me Cause it only 